Well, Dr. Milton Rokich, who studied mental illness, once treated three patients at a psychiatric facility in Michigan. These patients, named Leon, Clyde, and Joseph, all suffered from delusions of grandeur, a common disorder. What made this situation uncommon, however, is that all three patients believed that they were actually Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard of the Messiah complex. These three men took that to an entirely different level. Dr. Milton tried to convince these men that they really weren't God in the flesh, and he hoped that as they ate and lived and did group therapy with one another, the reality would set in that they were not Jesus. And as you can imagine, this led to some very interesting conversations. For example, one of the men would say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know? Rokich would ask. God told me, the patient would invariably answer. But just then, another of the three would interject, I never told you any such thing. And once the third man got into the act, there was complete chaos. Once the disagreements became so sharp and angry, each Christ would merely assume that the other two were simply patients in a mental hospital. He, on the other hand, of course, was the genuine article. Well, sadly, Rokich wasn't successful in his attempts to convince the men that they weren't God. They were trapped in this upside-down reality where they thought they were the center of the universe and life was really about them. But we know the foundation of reality is that there's one God and you are not him. And once that's established, a choice must be made. And here it is. I know that there's the Lord God, the Lord of all creation. I also know there's the God of me, the pretender to the throne. And so whom will I serve? It's not an accident that we've saved this God of me until last in this sermon series because In this one area, uh, it's the one area that lies behind all of the others. And one you will grapple with probably daily, this question of, will you serve God or me? How do we know if the God of me is battling to push God off the throne of our hearts? Well, the God of me can show itself in a number of different ways. Could be arrogance, thinking that we're always right could be insecurity, terrified about what others think. Could be defensiveness, fearing that we failed, thinking we must be perfect, or just being overly self-conscious when we take ourselves too seriously. But this is not a new battle, uh, according to the Bible. Ezekiel 28.2, for example, describes it saying, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. It's God versus me, and we're all in this battle. What happens when you put yourself on the throne of your heart instead of God? Well, Scripture will show us. And so let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2 to start. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And the heading uh, in my Bible, at least there, for Jeremiah 2, 1 through 13, is Israel forsakes God. And so this section is going to give us a clear picture of what happens when we abandon God 
and we follow our own ways, the God of me. Jeremiah 2 says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So Jeremiah summarized the rebellion of God's people into two sins. First, they are rejecting God. And then secondly, they are turning to worthless idols. They have instead turned to these worthless idols. Jeremiah illustrates that God's people, whether it's you and I or the people of Israel in his day, we have a choice. And the two choices oppose each other. And so here is the choice according to Jeremiah. We will choose idols or the one true God. He explains to the people that when we put ourselves on the throne instead of God, it's like insisting on digging our own broken cisterns to drink out of when there's a spring of fresh living water flowing right beside us. So in choosing between idols and the one true God, it's like choosing between broken cisterns or the spring of living water. Now, cisterns were an important part of everyday life in Israel during Jeremiah's time. In fact, thousands of them have been uncovered by archaeologists. Rain was not frequent for about half of the year, and so the people in those days would dig their cisterns and then line them with bricks and plaster to hold the water. But cisterns were always breaking and losing water. And even when they didn't break, the water would often become stagnant or the supply would be inadequate. And so the people hearing this in Jeremiah's day would have thought that this analogy was ridiculous. No one would ever choose a cistern as their water source when a spring of crystal clear water was available. But that 
captures the ridiculousness of idolatry. You see, you and I, we choose a broken well with stagnant water instead of a spring of fresh water. We look to someone or something to do for us what God was meant to do. And some of you are thinking right now, we do? No, we don't. Yes, I'm afraid we do. We too choose broken cisterns with stagnant water instead of living water to satisfy us. And let me give you some examples of how you and I can be just like Israel. Instead of looking to God as a source of comfort, we turn to food or mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God as our source of significance, we turn to our careers or our accomplishments. Instead of looking to God as our source of security, we look to money and our investments. Instead of looking to him as a source of joy, we can look to our spouse or our children. Instead of looking to God as a source of hope, we can look to politicians or legislation. And instead of looking to God as our source of truth, we can look to popular opinion or academic consensus. Those things we look to for help aren't necessarily bad or evil in themselves. In fact, God can use them to accomplish his purpose. But the question is, have they become broken cisterns that we turn to instead of the living water? In other words, am I putting my hope in something that doesn't hold water? I hope not, because the God of me in all of its forms always leaves you disappointed and disillusioned. So here's the question that we're left with. Is there another hope? And the answer is absolutely, and you know it is, or I wouldn't ask it. As we think about these broken cisterns, we know that God longs for you and for us to experience his living water. And as he tells Jeremiah here in this passage, the heavens look on with great horror at the sight of God's children drinking from these nasty cisterns and rejecting the fresh living water. It's one of the most heartbreaking things for God the Father to watch. He's provided for and given his children what is pure and life-giving, and they are rejecting it. It would help to imagine it this way. As a father, you want to take your kids out to a steakhouse. Uh, One of your children has never tried steak before, and so you want to treat them. Um, You yourself obviously like steak, and I realize some of you may not, but imagine that you do like steak, and so you take your children to the steakhouse, And steak is brought to the table on a sizzling plate, and it's done to perfection. And as a parent, you can't help but smile at the thought of your child cutting into this steak and taking a bite. But then let's imagine at that point, when it's time to eat, your child reaches into their pocket, and with their sweaty hand, they pull out a piece of unwrapped, half-eaten beef jerky. And it's got some mold on it and some lint from their pocket as well. Right in front of them is this perfect filet, and they are chewing on some old beef jerky. How would you respond to that? I think you'd probably get upset. I mean, you paid for the steak. You love your child. You want them to experience one of the joys that you have. You might be frustrated frustrated or saddened at the same time. But I believe this is how God feels when he sees his children reject his water for their own cisterns. I believe this is how God feels when you and I turn to broken cisterns to fill ourselves 
instead of turning to him. So how does God respond to people like us who have pursued other things to quench our thirst? Does he reject us and throw up his hands in disgust? Well, let's take a look at John 4 and we'll find out. And and we need to find out. John chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 14. And this is a passage for all of you who are thirsty today. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is traveling, and the Bible tells us he had to go through Samaria. But if you look on a map, that doesn't seem entirely accurate. He didn't really have to go through Samaria. I mean, there were certainly ways around it. And most Jews would have done whatever was necessary to stay out of Samaria. There's a lot of prejudice and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. But John says that Jesus had to go through. He had to go through in order to meet this woman who had been desperately searching for something or someone to put her hope in. But she had been drinking from broken cisterns. And her search always ended in disappointment. Jesus meets her at a well, which is different from a cistern. I mean, a cistern collects rainwater, and a well allows you to draw water from underground. But as with cisterns, getting water from a well required a lot of effort. And like cisterns, wells would often be dry or full of stagnant water. But it's noon, and Jesus is likely hot and tired. And so as he sits down to rest at the well, he's thirsty, but there's nothing he can do. The well is deep, and he has no way to draw from it. The disciples leave for lunch, but Jesus knows the woman is coming. And when the woman comes for water, Jesus asks her for a drink. She's shocked that he would talk to her, being a woman and a Samaritan, but Jesus adds to her shock by telling her that if she knew who he was, she'd ask him for water. Now, I'm guessing that by this time, she's thinking that the sun must be getting to this guy 
based on what he said, and that he came to the well without a bucket. But Jesus explains to her that if she drinks his water, she'll never be thirsty again, that he has something that will satisfy her thirst forever. She is thinking in terms of the physical world, that Jesus has physical water to quench her physical thirst. She has nothing to lose, so she agrees to drink this magical water from this strange stranger. Jesus tells her to go back home and get her husband and then come back together. She tells him that she doesn't have a husband, and then Jesus, with a gentle smile, says, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. She realizes that he's some kind of prophet, and immediately she tries to take the spotlight off of herself by changing the subject. She asks a theological question. Jesus quickly answers it, but she still doesn't understand. And so she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then in verse 26, Jesus simply declares, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. It's the only time we know of in his entire life that Jesus voluntarily reveals his identity. And so imagine this moment for this woman. Her search has finally come to an end. Five husbands. That's five different wells, and all of them leaked. None of them held water for long. But when Jesus reveals who he is, there's something within her that knows he's the one her soul has been longing for. This is good news for the thirsty. Good news for the thirsty. And that is that Jesus is the living water. And also that Jesus can satisfy your thirst. And so my friends today, I pray that you would have your eyes opened, just as this woman did. That you would realize all of the broken cisterns that you are trying to drink from. What is it going to take to get you to drink the living water? Does God have to remove every other thing that you've tried to satisfy your thirst with? I hope not. I talk to many people who refuse to come to the living water, but then some do come after they are broken. Sometimes it's divorce. Sometimes it's bankruptcy. Sometimes it's a health struggle or the loss of a loved one. But whatever they leaned on is suddenly gone, and all of a sudden they discover what they really need, Jesus. And so, friends, please realize that this battle we've been talking about is going on for your heart. The enemy wants you to serve the God of pleasure or power, success, the God of love or sex, any God but the one true God. And you have to decide who you will serve. The God of me or the king of all creation. Aren't you tired of digging cisterns? Countless hours of digging cisterns. Could be cisterns of marriage, cisterns of money, cisterns of health, hoping for a little satisfaction, something just to satisfy your thirst And finding that none of them in the end 
held water or satisfied you. While all this time, right beside you, there's a spring of living water. What Jesus says to this woman, he also says to you and I today in verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so today, what are you thirsty for? Are you stressed out and thirsty for peace? Are you lonely and thirsty for love? Are you bored and thirsty for purpose? Are you thirsty for acceptance, for validation, for significance? Are you just thirsty for something more? Because the God of me relentlessly calls us to chase after all of these things, but ultimately we're left more thirsty than ever. So here's the invitation from Jesus. Drink from me and you will never thirst again.